0: The scripture today comes from Acts 17, verses 16 through 17 and 22 through 28. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven and the earth and does not live in temples built by human hands." For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, Rachel. Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany on this beautiful day. Thanks for coming in for a moment to worship with us and consider uh, the claims of Christ at our text this morning, which is in Acts chapter 17. We'll go there in just a moment, but we'll begin uh, just with a word of prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we'd like to thank you for the privilege of gathering here today. Thank you for the safety of this place, the beauty of this place, for the beauty of the day and the amazing provision of sunshine and warmth and fresh air, Father, that invigorates and fills us with joy. We receive these as gifts. We pray now that also uh, our time together in the Scripture would be a gift, asking that your Holy Spirit would teach each of us in the room we gather in different situations and circumstances ranging from hope to despair, confidence to uncertainty, and we trust your power to speak to each of us and to us as a community. So we give the moments to you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We begin in Isaiah this morning, but you don't need to turn there, Isaiah 44, where Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament unpacks a theme that runs... Throughout the Bible, it's the theme of idolatry. And we will be talking about idols this morning, so I want to begin by giving you a definition of an idol. An idol is anything in your life to which you look for uh, a primary source of security, direction, meaning. Meaning. So if I'm looking to something for as a source of security, direction, of meaning, that thing that is my primary source, it, it can become an idol in my life. So that would I, that's to which I look for security, meaning, and direction becomes often becomes idols in our lives. And in Isaiah, Isaiah is trying to contrast for the nation of Israel, the folly of worshiping an idol versus the reality and hope found in worshiping a living, true, eternal God, because... The point that Isaiah makes in Isaiah chapter 44 is an idol is, is an inanimate object, and, an, and the idol will never, it could never be eternal, right? So, for example, Isaiah says, uh, consider the woods when he goes out. He cuts a piece of wood. He cuts it into two pieces. One piece he crafts in an idol. The other, he splits up. He dries it for firewood, and then he uses it for two reasons. A, to cook, right? He cooks his bread. B, to warm his house. So with the same piece of wood, he cooks eats bread, warms his house, and then uh, with that same person over here, he turns and he bows down and he worships this idol, which is inanimate, uh, temporary, and unable to impart any kind of eternal life. And yet he looks there uh, to the idol as a source of meaning, as a source of provision, as a source of security, and Isaiah is saying, don't do that when there's a living God. Why would anyone make such bad choices? I mean, if, uh, if you could only choose one and you're given a typewriter or a MacBook Air, what are you choosing? If you can only choose one, and you're given a, land, a landline or a cell phone, what are you choosing? I mean, we don't make foolish choices. We, we're smart people. We always know what's life-giving. <laughs> well, always. And so Paul is saying, <laughs> it's, it's silly, really, to succumb to idols because they overpromise and underdeliver. That's the point. And so when we come to Acts 17, this theme of idolatry that runs like a thread through the Bible appears once again as the Apostle Paul is speaking to some people in Athens, and this is what Paul says look, God isn't a statue. God, listen, is flesh and blood. God is flesh and blood. God's a man. Christ and as such God has the power to give to you what an idol never can Uh, joy curiosity hope creativity generosity a passion for justice God if you allow God to do so and make God an object of worship in your life, God will become the source of all that is life-giving. This is why Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. You're alive, by us, but you don't have zoe, the Greek word for life that implies this life saturated with hope and meaning and security and confidence, and you have this confidence in the tra- trajectory of history that enables you to live life now well, fully. <laughs> That's the life to which we are invited in Christ. And it's the life about which Paul speaks in Acts chapter 17, and when when he speaks there, we see in Paul three powerful benefits of looking to Christ as life. And I want to articulate these three as we look at this in Acts chapter 17. Those who turn from idols and look to Christ alone as a source of security find in their lives A, the capacity to be fully present with both people and culture, wherever we are. Like if I'm in Christ, I'm able to live fully in the present moment with both people and culture. B, I'm able to live creatively. Paul is deeply creative. And, and C, I'm content to leave the results of my life in God's hands. I don't build a life. I just sow seed. The fruit comes from God. So I can, be, I can be fully present, I can be creative, and I can be content in Christ. Who wants that? I do. And that's what this text is about. So we begin here by looking at Paul's capacity to be fully present with a people and culture wherever he finds himself. And so I'll read beginning in Acts chapter uh, 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. It's just an observation here. In Athens, there's a hill. It's called Mars Hill. On the hill, there are idols, all kinds of idols. Idols having to do with fertility and uh, uh, military prowess and uh, idols having, having to do... With, with crops and abundance and prosperity, idols. So Paul, is what he's doing is he's walking around the hillside he's reading every single inscription on every single idol. Which is interesting because the thing that I want to observe here is it's Paul's day off, if I can say it that way. It says in verse 16, Paul was waiting at Athens. And now here's the thing. If you know what he's come from, then if you're like me, you look at this and you go, why is he doing this? Because here's what's just happened to him. Uh, he came to Christ in Acts chapter nine, and so he moved from being uh, Jewish to Christian, from Judaism to Christianity. He moved. As soon as he did that, the Christians didn't trust him, because he was Jewish. They thought he was an infiltrator. The Jews were mad at him because he'd left their faith. He had no friends. As soon as he came to Christ, life didn't get better. it got worse. And then he goes and he preaches in Philippi. And as a result of preaching in Philippi, a riot breaks out in the city. He's beaten and he's thrown in jail. And then he gets out of jail because there's this miraculous earthquake. And, and so he leaves Philippi and he goes to the next town. And again, there's a riot and he leaves again. And then he goes to Thessalonica and he preaches. And again, there's a riot and he leaves again. And now he's in Athens. And every time he's opened his mouth and talked about Jesus, it's been trouble, riot, trouble, prison, trouble, beating, trouble, riot, and I was in Athens. Let me just ask you, when you've had a string of bad days, how many of you would just like to be left alone for a while, anybody in the room? Oh, that's totally me. We were talking about that in the interim conversation the other day. Isn't there a time when we can just lay on the sofa and look up? I hope so, yes, And and what's so amazing to me here, it says Paul's, all he's doing in Athens is waiting for his friends. It's a layover, right? And yet in, his, in this moment of quote-unquote layover, Paul is fully present, learning the culture, reading the inscriptions on the idols, even though he's only there for a day or two, he's all there. And here's why. Paul understands that in Christ, wherever he is at any given moment, he's called in that moment to be the presence of Christ. This is a very big deal. Because uh, he would have every reason to have withdrawn from all his trials and just chill and wait for his friends to arrive. He doesn't do that. He would, on the other hand, even if life had been going well, had have every reason to simply be looking ahead to the next thing because in just a few days he's leaving Athens. If I'm leaving in a few days, why be fully present? Why not begin to anticipate the future? And all of us in the room at various times do this, don't we? Already, for some of you, you're going sailing next weekend. And you're like this. Stupid Monday. I have to live Monday before I can get to Tuesday. And, I can, I, and the only reason I'm living Tuesday is so I can get to Wednesday. And Wednesday's only good because it's the precursor to Thursday, which is nice because it's Friday Eve. <laughs> and then on Friday, sailing! And so you're enduring life for five days. Can I tell you, this is antithetical to what it means to be a Christ follower. <laughs> Christ is inviting us to be fully present wherever we are. And so... Uh, Graduates, you're leaving. You're going to go to a new place. And if you're only there for a few weeks because it's a gap between graduation and the job, wherever you are, be all there. If you're staying in town, you're doing a master's degree, if you're only here for a year, don't wait it out. Be here for a year. Become a member of Bethany Community Church. Commit. If you're in the midst of a crisis, be fully present in the crisis. If you're in the midst of resting, be fully present resting. If you're in the midst of cooking breakfast, be fully... Present, cooking breakfast. Wherever God has placed you in the moment, be all there. Ecclesiastes says it this way in the Old Testament, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Because there's no singing in the grave where you're going. In other words, this this is your moment right now. No worrying right now about slacklining at Green Lake later, or the barbecue that's coming up, or the soccer game that's on at 2 p.m. Venezuela, by the way. Don't worry about it. That's later, this is now. So, so the point would be, articulated by Jesus in the New Testament, don't worry about tomorrow, Matthew chapter 6. And one of my favorite Greek words is the word in Greek for worry because it's the word in Greek, merimnao, which means this, to be divided. And, and many of us in the room are tormented in our lives because we have lost the capacity to be fully present. We're divided. How many of you have ever had this happen? I'm listening to you, but I'm not really listening to you because there's a more interesting conversation over here. Anybody in the room? Yeah. And so, yeah, there's eye contact, but there's the ear contact is over here. Or I'm listening to you, and what you're saying is so maddening that I've already, uh, crafti- I'm already crafting my response, and I'm no longer listening. I'm living in the future. Or I'm living with regrets over the past, and regrets over the past, fear of the future, anticipation of the future, all steal us from the capacity to be the presence of hope in the present moment. Paul is waiting, but it's active waiting. He's all there. And so what's he doing while he's waiting? Well, he's doing what I call his archeology. span He's doing his archeology. span In other words, even though he's only, it's a layover in Athens, he's learning the culture of Athens. He's walking across the hillside and it says he's carefully observing the idol. So he's reading the inscription on every single idol. For what reason? He's curious. And by the way, curiosity is a very good thing. It's It's a value that is ours in a sense in Christ. And he also knows the Greek poets. They aren't his poets. He's Jewish. But when he gets up and is later given an opportunity to speak, as Rachel read, he begins by saying, as your own poets have said, he quotes not the Bible, not the Old Testament, which uh, would be his favorite language. He quotes their poets. He's in, when in Greece, be Greek. (laughs) When in Rome, be Roman. When in Seattle, buy Gore-Tex. Like wherever you are, be all there because that's where you are. Know your culture. You live in Seattle. Read the sons of the prophets so that you understand the the, the history of the city in which you find yourself. And learn the poets. Our culture has poets too. Few of them are poets anymore. They're musicians. They're filmmakers. A little bit they're artists. They're sports figures. But poets help us see what's there in real time. Poets kind of shake us awake and help us see reality. It's a valuable gift to any culture to have poets. And the thing is, it doesn't matter what a poet's worldview is, poets can expose truth and provoke questions. And that has value. So learn the culture and learn the poetry of the culture. Uh, Back in the day, When I was in high school, Billy Joel was my favorite poet. He was just in town. And I think he uh, sang at almost the same time as Beyonce, who's some of your generation's favorite poet. How fun to see a joint concert with the two of them. Would that be awesome? (laughs) All of us would be there. (laughs) Every age. And in between the two, Dave Matthews. All of them have this amazing capacity to point to eternal truth at various times. Eternal truth, God's truth. As does Game of Thrones. <laughs> As does the Seattle Seahawks and increasingly the Seattle Mariners. <laughs> so we do well to listen to the poets of our culture. We'd do well. We'll see why in a moment. Dave Matthews uh, has a, it's one of her songs called Gray Street. And I uh, took my children when they were teenagers to Dave Matthews' concert at the Gorge over Labor Day weekend. And we're sitting, on a, never forget, we're sitting on a blanket, me and a couple of my kids. And uh, there's a woman over here. And this, this uh, song, Gray Street, begins to play. And she's, a, she's there with a couple of kids. And I don't know if she's a single mom. I don't know anything about her. But this is what I know. As soon as this song begins to play, she begins to cry, begins to weep. And then what's the song? Well, the song is about a woman who's looking out a window onto her life and everything is gray. Hopeless, actually. And she asks the question, how did it come to this? How am I stuck in domestic violence? Why is there cancer in my family? Why did my husband leave me or have an affair? I don't know her story at all, (laughs) but I know this. Dave Matthews asked the question, how did life come to this? Have you ever asked the question I have? And then I'm going to by God, I'm going to do something about it. And she sets out to fix her life. And yet, this is what Dave says over and over again, no matter what path I take, the colors turn to gray. I try upward mobility, gray. I try more sex, gray. I try therapy, gray. How do I get out? That's the question. Poets ask it well. But it's a, it's, a, it's a true question. And the answer uh, offered in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, is this look, there's only one way out because everything, everything, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 3, everything whoosh, turns to dust. I mean, you think CrossFit's going to make you live forever? Forget it. it. And sex is all you have? That's pretty sad. Millions, you won't take it with you. And here's this lady, why is she crying? I think because Dave Matthews says so, maybe better for her, uh, the the, the truth of Ecclesiastes, better than Ecclesiastes says it. He says, take a look at your life, is it working? And here's the answer, no. And until I ask the question, I'm not open to receiving the answer that is life-giving. So Christians are invited to be curious and recognize truth, watch this, wherever it appears. Not just in the Bible, everywhere. Everywhere. Truth appears in a good meal. Truth appears on a morning of sailing. Truth appears on an interception thrown two yards from the end zone in the Super Bowl. Sad but true. Matthew Paris. Atheist and journalist wrote an article years ago entitled, Why Africa Needs God. And when you read the article, it's really about why Africa needs Christianity. And his observation was this, having traveled the continent, my single most astute observation is the people who are most life-giving, most filled with hope, most interested in changing their culture for the better. The people who are filled with hope, um, irrevocably, every single time, are Christians. Every time. This This guy's an atheist. And he says, I don't even want to be writing this because I don't believe that what they believe is true, but I'm telling you there's something here worth paying attention to. These people are filled with hope, they're living lives of meaning, and they're marked by this intense curiosity, big smiles, eye contact, Africa needs God, end of story. Wow. And I say this atheist maybe sees better than what some of us see, the profound riches available in Christ. So I'd do well to be curious and read widely, rather than being quick to categorize someone, and if they don't believe exactly the way I do, push them to the sidelines. No, no. When we're too quick to categorize, we, we end up with big mouths and small ears. And, and actually pretty ugly. Because our, 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 our dialogue with the larger world, people driving by right now, becomes about how we're right and they're wrong. But the actual truth is, uh, though we may know and enjoy fellowship with Christ, there are areas in our lives where we're wrong. And we can learn from others who don't have Christ, but who display the character of Christ in some ways that are convicting to us, and they may have things to say to us, and so I better have big ears and a small mouth, as Paul does here in Athens. So do your archaeology, and when Paul does his archaeology, what he discovers is that the culture is filled with idols, and by the way, our culture is filled with idols too. Ours are not made of wood and stone. Ours are made of plastic (laughs) and rare metals. And what they end up representing is upward mobility, individualism, instant gratification, and how's that working for us? Polarized, anxious, lonely, addicted, obese, people dying younger for the first time in a century, because there's nothing worth living for. We have idols. We don't know them, but we have them. So, uh, the, the fact here is, in, interesting, Paul's waiting in Athens, and, and it says, his spirit was provoked as he's observing the city full of idols. And again, here's a cool word, this word provoked, because the word provoked is a combination of pain and affection. He's sad, because these people are looking uh, to something as a source of life that is unable to impart life. And in fact, m- more than unable to impart life, idols have this, this wicked capacity for overpromising and underdelivering, and the under-delivering inevitably results in despair, addictive behavior, and destructive behavior. So Paul, like, he's sad that people are looking for life in something that cannot offer life. I find that sometimes... Uh, when I see people who are so into something that the something that they're into is their life. And I will again reference our beloved Seahawks after our last Super Bowl loss, and how on the very next day, um, absenteeism at work was like 50% or something like that because everyone was so depressed. Do you remember this? And I go, come on, it's just a game, right? And we get to live here, they're still stuck in Boston. <laughs> or with our other loss, Pittsburgh. And so, did we lose? Fine. Let's go sailing. <laughs> did we lose? Fine. There's always clamp chowder. Did we lose? Fine. God is still on the throne. And what Paul sees here is that idols have so consumed people that their lives are ravaged with despair. And so his spirit's provoked. And and the reason that this provoking is powerful to me is because Paul is then motivated by the provoked spirit to get up and engage in conversation with people in Athens, even though it's just a layover. And I would not have been there. Because if prior to coming to Athens, uh, my track track record would have been, oh, uh, that's right, in Philippi, I was beaten, tossed in jail, there was a riot... In the next town, there was a riot again. In Thessalonica, there was a riot. They drove me out of town. Every time I open my mouth and talk about Jesus, not only does no, it's not that people don't want to listen and they walk away. People throw things at me, right? And so, you know, strike one, strike two, strike three. There's a saying, and I still don't know it. Fool me once, shame on somebody. Shame, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Is that how it goes? Fool me three times, I'm a fool, That's my addition to the saying, because I go, like, come on, every time you talk about Jesus, this is like Pavlovian at this point, don't you know, when you talk about Christ, bad things happen. And so I would have just disengaged entirely, not Paul. After three disastrous movements, again, we find Paul reasoning in the synagogue and in the city uh, with with, with the Greek philosophers in Athens, the Epicureans and Stoics. Because he is so convinced that Christ is a source of meaning, security, joy, and hope that he will not stop sharing Christ. I I mean, I love that. And and in short, I want to be Paul, actually. To have such compassion for people around me uh, that I am able to engage with them whether or not they ever believe, and love them whether they ever believe, and serve them whether they believe, but to do so because I'm filled with Christ and I, I so desperately want people not to be enslaved and ravaged by worldviews and idols that can never give life. I want people to know life in Christ. And so I want to talk about Jesus. I was on a plane a trip from Delhi to. Bangkok, Bangkok to Tokyo, Tokyo to Seattle one time. And so when I landed in Bangkok, my flight from Bangkok to Tokyo was gonna be five hours delayed. And we didn't find that out until we'd gone through everything and we're in this room. And, and so there's a round table and I just sit at this round, random round table and I sit next to a guy and we begin talking and he's there with two other friends and they've just come from an ashram, right? Like a little commune in India. I said, oh, well, you know what are you doing? And he says, oh, well, you know, This particular uh, guru is who we're following now. And I like I'm interested. And so I began he tells me what ends up happening, he's telling me a five-year story of spiritual seeking in his life. And he said, Yeah, you know, we were at a commune in like organic farm in Vermont, you know, and then there was something in Montana, and then we went, I perked up, he said, then we went down to Southern Oregon. There was a guy named the Bagwan, and I knew I knew the whole story. And uh, we were there, and this guy, by now, he's telling me, oh, I was super animated. I don't know if he knows yet what I do, but he's telling me all this. And he goes, yeah, with that bag one guy, we, you know, we sold everything. We sold everything, gave all our possessions to him, and then he was indicted for tax fraud and shipped out of the country. And so I, this is what he says to me. This is our last hope, this, this guru. This is our last hope. And I, this is what I said. No, this isn't your last hope. He says, "What do you mean?" I says, "Have you thought about Christ?" And he get a lot, he got a little awkward, you know. He goes, and then you know, and then we're t- he said, oh, "I'd like to hear about it." And then, as soon as he says that, now boarding, you know. And so, that's it. We get on the plane. Guess who's sitting next to me? <laughs> Five hours, <laughs> right? Bangkok to Tokyo. Seed sown. Christ. Not wood, not stone, not temporary. Come on, been around now 2,000 years. Broken? Absolutely. The institution's broken. The church is broken. I get it. But I'm not inviting you to church. I'm inviting you to Jesus. Jesus is not broken. (laughs) So we had a good conversation. And I hope you have good conversations. Because you have within you If you're a Christ follower, nothing less than the resurrected Jesus who's transforming your life, moving you from greed to generosity, from meaninglessness to hope, from individualism to a desire to serve and love everyone, regardless of skin color, gender orientation, anything. You have within you nothing less than the life of Christ. Share it freely. (laughs) Be the river that Jesus says that you are. Because every idol, every idol, Overpromises and underdelivers. So here's the other thing I love about Paul. It's the second observation. Paul's deeply creative. He's not only fully present with people and culture, he's deeply creative. He builds bridges with people and culture to share the truth found in Christ. So when Paul, now having looked at all the idols, begins to have these conversations in the town square with people about Jesus, Epicurean, Stoic, Greek philosophers say, oh, this is interesting. We've never heard this before. We want to hear more. And so they invite Paul to speak in the main square, the Areopagus, which if you're UW, that's Red Square. If you're SPU, that's Martin Square. If you're Seattle, that's Pike Place Market or Safeco Field or something, right? Big big public arena. So Paul's given this huge platform to speak. Why? Because he's tapped into a curiosity that is present in the city of Athens. And I will just say... uh, we're just like Athens. We live in a city filled with, cu- with curiosity. If you don't believe me, read The Stranger sometime. Do you, you know this magazine? So many of you do, some of you don't. You don't have to read it, but I'll just say, one of the funnest things I do is we, I, there's some students from Montana Wilderness School of the Bible who come to Seattle for a week every February. And they're from, I mean, they're, where they are in school, there's no cell coverage and they turn the internet on for an hour at night or something like that. And so these people are like culturally isolated and then they drive over the mountain and boom, here they are in Seattle for a week. So on Monday, first day of the week, what I like to do is give them a copy of The Stranger, every one of them. <laughs> and say, now I want you to just read this tonight and you know, circle world views that are different than yours. <laughs> right? And, you know, they they come back on Tuesday. Some of them are crying. (laughs) Some of them are angry. Some of them said, I started, but I ripped it up. I couldn't handle it, you know. And it's like, boom, it's too much because we live in a place where every worldview uh, has a seat at the table, by the way, including Jesus. So don't apologize. People are curious. And people are wondering what works, just like that guy on the plane from Bangkok to Tokyo, and I've tried and it's failed, and I've tried and it's failed, and I've tried and it's failed. What works, uh, and what I love about Paul here, is uh, he's deeply creative, not only in his curiosity, but in the way that he shares his message. Because the starting point, when given a chance to speak, is not... I'm here, you're there. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm saved, you're lost. He doesn't start with what they have different. He starts with what they share in common. Paul stands up, verse 22, in the midst of the Areopagus, the town square, and he says, Men of Athens, I observe you're religious in every respect. So the, the, the starting point, the central thrust of his message is this look how much we share. You're seeking truth, I'm seeking truth. You're religious, I'm religious. You you believe you're made by God? I believe I'm made by God. That's pretty powerful. Verse 26, he says, "You and I, we all come from the same source, God," and we both believe that. So Paul sees, watch this, a radical commonality as the starting point of the conversation. He looked for common ground as a starting point, and this is the opposite of what I grew up with in the church that I attended where I was taught not to look for what I share in common with another person, but how we're different. And this uh, continues to prevail, not only within Christianity today, but within our larger culture, does it not? So that in an increasingly polarized culture, uh, conversations are characterized by, oh, who are you voting for? Oh, really? And then we're done. Because we're done politically... And we're, we're done with respect to economic philosophy, and we're done ideologically, and by the way, we're done spiritually. And so we look and we say, oh, I'm Baptist, you're Presbyterian. It's a wall. I'm Baptist, you're Mormon. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm in, you're out. I'm gay, you're straight. I'm Republican, you're Democrat. And we're so quick to put somebody in a category so that once they're in a category, I needn't listen anymore. And I just want to share with you, Paul's lens with which he looks at humanity is utterly the opposite of that. Will there always be differences? Absolutely. But the starting point is not how we're different. The starting point is what we have in common. And oh, I wish the church knew this. Because people are driving by here who view us as utterly irrelevant because when we begin to converse with people, we only want to explain to them how we're right and they're wrong. (laughs) And Paul is saying, look, you have deep longings for something eternal. So do I. That's good news. Let's start there. And what are these deep longings? Well, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the preacher says that God has placed eternity in everyone's hearts so that everyone driving by here right now who views the church as irrelevant has in some measure longings for meaning, intimacy, peace, joy, hope, justice. These are common in varying measures for everyone. Why? Because Genesis 9, all of us are made in God's image. We all come from God. I was at an awards banquet the other night and a man receiving an award was thanking colleagues and one of the colleagues to whom he referred, uh, it was pretty clear pretty quickly that he had passed away, died died of cancer. And so he's honoring this, this other guy, but it's a bit of a eulogy actually. And I'm sitting in this room and the woman sitting literally right in front of me is the wife of the man who had died of cancer and she's at this awards banquet. This guy's receiving the award. And when he is eulogizing her deceased husband, I watch this woman burst into a puddle of tears. I don't know anything about her. I don't know her name. I don't know her worldview. I don't know if she's an atheist. I don't know her sexual orientation. I don't know anything. I know this she hates death and loneliness. And she should because we're not made for death and loneliness. And we have that in common. I hate death too. And cancer, and human trafficking, and a world where a privileged few are vastly wealthy, while in spite of all the food we have, many go hungry. I hate all that. And many in our world hate it too. And Christ is seeking to show us a way forward. (laughs) So what Paul does then when given uh, an opportunity to speak is he uses a common ground as the starting point, and then using that common ground, he introduces attention into the conversation because in verse 23 he says this, Look, I see that you're religious in every respect. I was on the hill. I was reading the idols. As I was passing through and examining all... He doesn't call them idols. I love this. While I was examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription. And I'll just say here, Language matters. Had he said to them, I was on the hillside and I saw all these stupid, worthless idols, like the conversation's over. I mean, do you understand how important words are? Well, I'm examining your objects of worship, he says. This is what I saw. To the unknown God, it's all it says on one, one inscription. And then here's Paul I know the unknown God. Now everyone's listening. Why? because Paul is answering a question hears might actually have. If you stand up and say to your neighbor, you need to be saved. Are you kidding me? If that's the first word, people are like this. Saved from what? The earthquake that's coming someday, maybe? Rainier blowing up? Economic downturn? The viaduct collapsing? Like what? Saved. Paul answers questions people might actually have, and people have questions today. I talk to business people who are like this: How do I make decisions? That's an entryway to the gospel, in my opinion. Uh, How do I? Okay, I've succeeded, but now having climbed this mountain, what do I do with all my money? That's an entryway to the gospel. In the midst of a health crisis, why do bad things happen? Entryway to the gospel. Questions about eternity. Entryway to the gospel. There are people all around us living with the consequences of idolatry who are anxious, lonely, addicted, afraid, in spite of outward success, suffering, victimized. And the glorious news of the gospel is that Christ not only calls us to something different, but empowers us to live into that difference. We're called to be people who embody peace and community and freedom and courage and joy. That's pretty good news, I would say. And then what Paul does is he calls people to repentance. In other words, he calls them to move from their idols as a source of security to God, found in Christ. And here's how he does it. It's brilliant. He uses their own poets to explain that if we're the offspring of God's, we should turn to Christ. And here's his reasoning. He says, your own poets have said that we are the offspring of God, right? True. And they're all nodding. Yeah, yeah, we're, all, we're the offspring of God's or God, God or the gods, we're God's offspring. Well, don't we usually look like the one who gives us birth in some way? Like, if we, are, are we even in the ballpark species? I mean, your idols are made of wood. Who in the room is wood? No one. Oh, oh, but there's other idols. Made of stone. Any stone statues in the room? No one. So listen, if you're the offspring of God, then what would God look like? I guess flesh and blood. And now here's Paul. The word, Christ, became flesh. God exists in a man. (laughs) And you are his offspring and his brothers. That's good news. Because it means now that we have capacity by virtue of Christ living in us to live the life for which we are created because we are created... To look like God. We're image bearers. We're we're made in God's image. Called to be people of hope and joy and mercy and peace and justice. How are we doing? So turn from your story to Christ. From your pursuits to Christ. And it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher. It doesn't matter if you work for a religious organization. The reality is all of us in the room have areas in our life that we've sequestered off and made an idol and looked somewhere else other than Christ for, for meaning or security or deliverance or at the very least escape. And Paul is saying here, turn to Christ because when you are in Christ, you are a river of hope in a despairing world. So turn so that you can be fully present, creative, engaging, laughing, generous. This is the gospel. And many of us in the room are afraid to share anything about Jesus with anyone because we don't want to be thought of as the guy standing outside... Um, Uh, Safeco Field with with the sign, right? Turn or burn. We don't want to be that guy. And so we're like witnessing, thanks, no, not me. And I'm here to say to you the last thing, the most beautiful thing about this entire story to me is that Paul now uh, is content to leave the results of what he shares in God's hands. In other words, uh, in verse 32 and 34, it says, some said of Paul after he shared the gospel, some said he's crazy. (laughs) Others said we want to hear more. Others believed. And, and what I love about this, at least personally, is that when some people said he's crazy, Paul was not fazed by that. Like, uh, he didn't get an email from somebody saying, you know, Richard, in your sermon, your grammar was wrong here, and your theology was wrong here. And when I get those sometimes, I'm like this, maybe I should quit. I'm not, not Paul. Paul's like this. Oh, I, man, I don't save anyone. That's not my job. My job is to represent the heart of Christ by being fully present, creative, generous, serving the people today where I find myself, and then I'm moving on and the results are in God's hands. Do you love that? He reminds, Paul reminds me of Johnny Appleseed, and here's why. When I was a kid, this'll date me, at the 45 record of Johnny Appleseed. On one side, Johnny Appleseed, on the other side, Paul Bunyan. And so when I, would get, when I was sick, I'd play that Johnny Appleseed record over and over and over again. And picture, I'm i laying in bed with the flu, and I'm picturing a guy with a beard with a bag of seeds just wandering around, doing this, where he goes. And I mean, as a kid, I never wanted to be a pastor ever, but I did want to be Johnny Appleseed because I, I thought, man, what a life that would be. Just go and pshht. And then, you know, the fruit of your work, generations later. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's your calling. So can we leave here today and become Johnny Appleseed? Sowing seeds of hope at work, at Green Lake, uh, in, in, in family relationships, wherever you go. Yeah, I mean, yes. If... You have any seeds in your pocket to give but here's the deal you can't give what you don't have and that's why we'll end today by coming to this table do you want to live a life of hope meaning you want, you, want to, you want to bless the world with all that God has given you you can but first you receive so that you can give so I'll pray then our service will come and we'll receive communion I'll explain it to you in just a moment let's pray together Father, thank you that we uh, are called to be people of hope, creatively, joyfully, lavishly, living fully in the present, engaging with those around us so that hope found alone in Christ can be sown as seed in the lives of others. Meet us here at this table as we respond to that beautiful, adventurous invitation that you give us. We pray in the name of Christ who is our hope.